listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Adverse drug reactions, or ADRs, are a serious issue in healthcare today. The pharmacist is the last line of defense to help prevent ADRs. A rising role of the pharmacist is the specialist who focuses on our children. Pediatric pharmacy ensures safe and effective drug use and optimal medication therapy outcomes in children up to 18 years of age. Currently, there are more than 1,450 board-certified pediatric pharmacy specialists, known as BPS. If you're interested in this expanding field of pharmacy, this podcast is for you. All right, everyone, let's give it up for our host. Hi, everybody. How are you? Um, This is Jenna Quinn from the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Um, I'm excited to introduce myself and my new co-host, Justin Cole. Um, We are doing the pediatrics in review. So um, this is Jenna Quinn and Justin, I'll I'll let you uh, give yourself an introduction. Yeah, excited to be with uh, with you again today, Jenna. I'm excited for our topic today and our guests. Um, I think uh, as we continue to roll on the podcast, uh, we continue to find great topics that are pertinent to today's pharmacists and other healthcare providers in pediatrics. So looking forward to today. Yeah, so t- today's topic is um, on cow's milk allergy, which I know a lot of parents experience, um, especially when they're in the early stages of parenthood, when parenthood is already super hard, you like have like a complete shock to your system when you start parenting um, <laughs> and you're already like in this whirlwind and then add on um, this allergy, it can be really, truly um, difficult for, for families to navigate. So we're really excited to have such experts here. Um, we are today talking to Dr. Jennifer Lightdale and uh, Dr. Karen Sikowski. Um, And so I will first let Jennifer introduce herself. Sure. So my name is Jennifer Lightdale, and I am a pediatric gastroenterologist. I am the Associate Chief of Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Nutrition at Boston Children's Hospital. And a long time ago, perhaps because at that point I was a new parent myself, I actually felt badly for all those parents who were really uh, sort of encountering this diagnosis, which is more common than people realize. And I think it's been a personal mission uh, to both educate the parents, educate, frankly, my colleagues and, and yes, pharmacists and anybody else involved in the healthcare system, because I think it is an under-recognized condition. And then, yes, with Karen Swiskowski, I'm also engaged in research uh, to try to understand it more in ways that maybe can change the paradigm a bit. So I'll change it, hand it to Karen to introduce herself. <laughs> Sure. Hi there. Um, so I'm Karen Spitkowski. I'm an epidemiologist and research scientist at the Harvard Pilgrim Healthcare Institute and Harvard Medical School. Um, I work on a cohort study of mother-child pairs um, where we do a lot of research, including research in food allergy. Um, and most of my research, in addition to food allergy, is just kind of generally focused on child feeding and nutrition, so do a little bit in pregnancy nutrition. Um, and also the parent of a child with food allergies, not milk allergies specifically, but other food allergies. So definitely I'll also have that personal experience with how difficult this can be. 
Wow. I love that you bring so many different perspectives to this. So excited to dive right in. Um, so if for context, maybe we could just simply start by providing some in background information on reactions to cow's milk in children. How common is a true allergy? And what are some of the common signs and symptoms that you typically see? So um, Jennifer, maybe I could ask you to start with answering that question. Sure. Um, so I think when you think about adverse reactions to cow's milk, uh, it actually can be either an adverse reaction uh, to lactose, so that's lactose intolerance, or it can be allergy. And both are actually really common, although they're common at different stages of life. Uh, so lactose intolerance is going to affect people much later in life, while allergy to the proteins in cow's milk is actually one of the most common food allergies in childhood, where we think to about up to 2% of preschool children will actually have antibody uh, to, to the cow's milk itself. So those are IgE uh, allergies, and a lot of others have non-IgE reactions going on. And then you know, if you ask me, well, what are common signs and symptoms like you did, Justin, I would say uh, true IgE allergy, so to speak, is um, going to be hives and maybe even anaphylaxis, sort of what you think of with, with an allergy. Um, but either type of allergy, either IgE or the non-IgE can involve stomach aches, irregular bowel movements, sort of non-specific GI symptoms, which is why as a pediatric gastroenterologist, it's very common for me to be thinking about this. Awesome. Thank you so much. Um, okay. So my next question, and I'll, and I'll ask Karen, what is the etiology behind the cow's milk reaction in children? And how does that differ from lactose intolerance? I know, I know uh, Jen kind of touched on this. Yeah, so as Jennifer said, you know, cow's milk allergy is a reaction of the immune system uh, that is specific to a protein in the milk. Um, typically, this is casein or whey that the child's reacting to. Um, and in contrast to an allergy, uh, which is, again is a reaction to a protein, a lactose intolerance results from the body's inability to break down lactose, which is a type of sugar. So we have a reaction to a protein um, with allergy versus reaction to a sugar or a carbohydrate with lactose intolerance. So when someone's not producing the lactase enzyme, their body will not be able to break down and absorb lactose, which will then lead to these various GI symptoms um, associated with lactose intolerance, uh, whereas an allergy, again, is really this uh, reaction that's mediated by the immune system. So typically with looking at babies and young children, um, lactose intolerance is generally not an issue. There are a few different types of lactose intolerance um, that are that can impact babies, but these tend to be either extremely rare um, or temporary. Um, and generally, if there's a reaction to uh, milk or milk products in young children, um, then you know we would suspect a cow's milk allergy as opposed to lactose intolerance, which typically doesn't manifest until you know, five years of age or, or older, even in uh, populations where it tends to be pretty common. That's great. Thanks for the background information. So uh, I'd love to know if you guys could kind of walk us through a timeline or brief history of previous recommendations related to the timing of cow's milk introduction to infants. Where have we been over the past decade or longer in terms of when we would suggest parents introduce cow's milk into the diet? Yeah, so the guidelines for prevention of food allergy in general have changed a lot in the past 20 years. It's actually a very interesting history. 
Um, so in the early 2000s, most of the guidelines were recommending avoiding early life exposure to potential food allergens altogether, including cow's milk. Um, so this included restriction of the mom's diet during pregnancy and breastfeeding, as well as delayed introduction of commonly allergenic foods like peanuts, eggs, seafood. Um, typically, it was recommended that these not be introduced until two years of age or later. Um, although cow's milk is interesting because it's sort of different in that milk and milk-based formulas have always been introduced much earlier than that. Um, so, you know, we saw that food at rates of food allergy kept increasing and um, were, it was able to accumulate more evidence since that time, which has pretty consistently confirmed that actually earlier introduction of these common food allergens um, appears to be protective against the development of food allergy. So then in 2008, the guidelines were revised to recommend that the common allergens be introduced along with other complementary foods at around six months of age um, and even earlier for infants who are determined uh, by a physician to be at high risk of food allergy. So those tend to be, you know, the infants with a family history, um, those with moderate to severe eczema or with other known food allergies. Um, and then just a general point, um, the introduction of any complementary foods is not really recommended before four months, just because the gut barrier is not quite mature enough to um, to handle those those food molecules, including allergens. Um, but we know that cow's milk protein is often introduced much earlier than that, even you know within the first day or two of life, um, in the form of cow's milk based infant formulas. Um, so we were really interested in you know what what the implications of this might be. Um, and we're also interested in focusing on cow's milk just because a lot of this research suggesting that earlier introduction seems to be protective has focused specifically on peanut and sometimes egg, uh, but we don't really know um, as much about whether these findings extend to other food allergens. Are you guys for or against using, you know, there's like, as said, this is because I have an 18 month old too, so I'm up on, you know, the, the different sort sorts of uh, food formulations they have out there, but are you guys for or against, you know, there's spoonful, like those little puffs that literally have like every single allergen. At four months, I gave them to my 18 month old. Is that something that you're encouraging parents to do or um, what's your take on that? So I will tell you, I think it's been an awesome marketing concept that, hey, let's give you this simple little puff that sort of does it all. I, I think the basic principle of exposure is appropriate between four to six months of age can be accomplished without buying the puff. So, you know, if you want to buy the puff and make it easy on yourself, and frankly, you can afford the puffs, that's great. If if it's really a matter of just exposing the baby, which ideally helps avoid healthcare disparities, um, that's great too. So I, I think the key is the principle and what works for you as a parent. Yeah, as a mom of three, there was no way I was getting like organic ways that I was going to make baby food for this third child. I'm like, here's a pop. Uh, which is, again, totally, totally appropriate. I just think we want the guidelines right now to be able to work, you know, regardless of where you live and, and how easy it is. But yeah, I think the, the the bottom line is there's a market out there for getting these guidelines right. And you're and you're seeing it in action right now as, all, as a lot of companies are jumping in. So. So if I could just throw a question in there, uh, Jennifer, I think you hit on something really important, and that is thinking about um, access and even the social determinants of health related to the introduction of various allergens. So maybe could you expand on that a little bit more about why you feel um, impassioned that those guidelines need to include a, a consideration for those social determinants? Well, I think, um, I mean, 
the bottom line is I think what we're seeing across, actually across the world in a global way has been this uh, increase in allergy and, and allergic conditions. And that is probably the effects of being in a um, developing uh, you know, country, but also frankly, globally, you're realizing that the climate change is having an impact. Everything's starting to impact um, humans and our immune systems are reacting and you're seeing more, more allergy going on. Uh, definitely um, people in developing countries are um, going to be suffering probably a, a more from those effects than others. And, and again, we want to get these guidelines right. We want to understand the public health implications and we want to be putting out recommendations that are going to work uh, regardless of whether you live, um, you know, in, in a high affluent area, a zip code, or you live in an area um, that you have a food desert, can't get to certain, certain foods. So I, th I think we need to talk about principles, et cetera, if that, if that helps, Justin. But Yeah, that's yeah. great. Thank you. Um, what do the role of um, genetics play into milk, uh, milk protein allergies? Yeah. So, I mean, again, I think we're talking about the environment that, that allergy is starting to increase. Um, but the other thing we know is that um, there's probably a hereditary uh predisposition to allergy. So while genetics may play a role, it's probably more complex than that. And we definitely don't fully understand it. What, what we do know is there are families who have immune systems that do seem to easily react to, to the world and to, to things. So there are hereditary risk factors in that if your parents or your siblings have allergies to food or the environment or eczema, asthma, seasonal allergies, all of, all of these conditions means they are themselves atopic. And an atopic family history is definitely a risk factor for the child themselves to develop um, atopy with cow's milk allergy being one of the first, first signs of that. So you guys have given us great background information here. I, I want to dive a little bit more into your specific work in this space and your collaborations together. So uh, maybe tell us a bit more about that and how some of the things that you are studying may help us to really define the most appropriate timing of cow's milk introduction in infants. So I'll, I'll give both of you an opportunity to talk about your own work in this space. Sure. So I can get started with this. Um, so, you know, we know that with, with cow's milk, it does seem that early exposure um, seems to be important for prevention. But, you know, as we've mentioned, milk allergy is sort of this interesting case where it's often the first food allergen introduced um, via these, these milk-based infant formulas. Um, and also allergy tends to show up very early, um, cow's milk allergy specifically, uh, suggesting that you know the risk of allergy might be impacted even by what's happening before the baby is born. So we were really interested in this. Um, there's sort of various ongoing research in this area um, but you know, some a lot of studies have shown that the importance um, of early and repeated exposure to cow's milk protein, you know, th this really seems to be to be the key here. Um, so we did a study in Project Viva, which again is a cohort study of mother-child pairs, um, and we found that babies who were not introduced to cow's milk protein until six months of age or later had a much higher risk of um, what we termed a cow's milk adverse reaction um, in early childhood than those that were introduced younger, so within two weeks after birth. Um, so the other thing we were very interested in looking at here um, was this concept of transient exposure to cow's milk protein. So 
there's a little research suggesting that this, um, this is important. And what we're talking about here is exposure that's sort of brief and temporary, but doesn't get sustained. And sort of the classic example is the bottle of formula that babies get in the nursery or in the hospital, you know, right after delivery. And then they go home and they're exclusively breastfed and they don't continue to get exposure to that cow's milk protein. Um, and then the idea here is that, you know, they become sensitized to the allergen, but then they don't go on to develop tolerance to that allergen if they don't continue to be exposed to it. So we had data on, on all of this, um, both whether the baby had received uh, any formula in the delivery hospital, as well as the timing of their first introduction to cow's milk protein. Um, and we consider this first exposure to either be a cow's milk-based formula or complementary food containing cow's milk um, if the baby was, was exclusively breastfed until the time of introducing complementary foods. So in our study, the babies who were given some formula right after birth and then went on to continue to receive some milk-based formula in the first two weeks of life had the lowest risk of developing cow's milk allergy of any other babies um, in our cohort. And then among the babies who didn't get any formula um, after birth, the best time to introduce cow's milk protein seemed to be sometime between two weeks and six months. Um, unfortunately, we just didn't have our data collected in a way that we could examine more specific exposure windows um, within that time interval. But definitely our, our work does seem to support the recommendations that cow's milk-based dairy products should be introduced along with other complementary foods and potentially allergenic foods, you know, sometime between four and six months of age. Um, but it also really highlights the significance of these formula supplements that are often given right after birth. Um, and, you know, sometimes this um, is not avoidable, and certainly this is not an argument in any way against formula feeding in general. But really, I think the message here is that mothers who are intending to exclusively breastfed just might want to avoid that, that post-birth supplement, um, if at all possible. Uh, just because, you know, we did see that that sort of transient exposure uh, seemed to increase the risk of having a later adverse reaction to cow's milk. And if, if I can be reassuring, if they say, oh, your baby, and this did happen to me, my baby is now 22, but <laughs> she was uh, low in her blood sugar right in the delivery room. She was very small and uh, we gave some formula right away. That's okay. That avoided her needing other things. Um, but it does mean that maybe it's appropriate then to continue to give her small exposures now moving forward. So, you know, it's it's not terrible. It's just to recognize that that exposure early on should be followed up with with re regular now uh, exposures moving forward. So can I, can I ask this at breastfeeding? Um, I'm like one of those weirdos that like I would breastfeed my child till like 25 if they let me. Um, so <laughs> you'd have to go to college with them. So yeah, <laughs> each like kid is like two years and then things get weird and I'm like, all right, mommy has to grow up. It's totally <laughs> me. So, you know, I two years with each my kid, 18, my, my last one, it's going to be super hard for me to stop. But um, a lot of mom's um, experience, can you explain to me like, with breastfeeding, is that milk protein allergy still there? And do you have success when they restrict their diet? And do you recommend they restrict their diet? Because obviously this is all super hard on your mental health too. I think we should, you know, address that topic Sorry. as well. Like you're a new mom and now you have like all these dietary restrictions. And so um, as a breastfeeding mother, I would love to know, you know, how, how you guys counsel on that point. Yeah. So, um, so I'm a, 
pro-choice person. So whatever somebody wants to do, that's what I'm trying to support them with. And I certainly have um, moms who want to exclusively breastfeed or just, you know, breastfeed. Uh, it, it, sometimes they're supplementing too, but they want they want to be breastfeeding. And I want it to be a pleasant, wonderful thing that they want to do till their child's 25. So, um, so my goal is obviously not to stress them out with the diet. Um, what we do know is maternal breast milk does reflect maternal diets. So, you know, in, in America, where we have so much dairy protein in our diet, it, it will be expressed in your breast milk. And it, it may not look exactly like the, you know, like straight cow's milk, but it's certainly, um, if, if you remove dairy proteins from your diet, you won't you won't find those oligopeptide chains uh, in, in the breast milk. Um, so I think some babies are really reacting and then we have to uh, limit mom's diet in a way that the baby isn't reacting. And and usually, again, it's, it's sort of, I call it poetry in motion. It's very much a moving target. So often once we get things under control, um, you're able to reintroduce uh, some degree and, and sometimes it's a you know, baked and some, you know, in the sense that you've changed the proteins a bit. So baked milk in, in good, sometimes it's just a small amount. So you can handle a little bit of milk in your coffee. But if you do milk in your coffee, plus cheese, plus yogurt, plus ice cream, that's when the baby has a reaction. So you have to sort of figure that out together. And and there are ways uh, to, to do that again, work, ideally working with somebody, either a dietitian or a, or a, um, a provider who can guide you through. But it is, it is about how much can the baby tolerate? And then back to what our study is showing, still getting exposures. In the end, if we want the baby to get over the allergy, we don't want mom to fully exclude the protein if the baby can tolerate small amounts, because in the end, that's going to be best at helping the baby get over the allergy. Yeah, by the time I figured out my daughter had an egg allergy, I had a whole freezer full of frozen breast milk with egg in it. And you know, I was throwing that out. So we just did, you know, small exposure mixed with, with the egg-free breast milk for a while and seemed to work out okay. Hey, I know that's gold right there. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, uh, kind of moving back to a little bit about the actual reactions. I know we've talked about timing, and that's been a bulk of your work um, related to the importance of cow's milk allergy. We've talked a little bit about heredity. Uh, are there any other factors that you have seen that increase the risk of um, cow's milk allergy specifically? Well, Karen can probably talk to this better because she is uh, just such an expert in Project Viva. But I think um, to the questions we were having before uh, on trying to understand the milieu in which a, a parent is, um, Viva did let us control for parental history of atopy or allergy, uh, what type of delivery the mom had had, gestational age of delivery, even like household income and you know zip codes and things like that. And you saw some changes in our estimates that were slight, but these actually aren't strong confounders. So it really, I think, you know, in the end, I think there really is going to be something to this better understanding of timing of exposure to foods that we want to have um, babies get, you know, in those very early months of life and how those are going to play out for preventing allergy, almost regardless uh, of any other history you may have. I don't know, Karen, if you have 
other thoughts there. Yeah, exactly. The only other thing I wanted to add was that we also did a little, um, basically what we call stratification. So we looked at these same associations between the timing of when the closed milk protein was introduced and the adverse reactions within specific groups that were defined by different characteristics. So one of the ones we looked at was babies who had ever been breastfed at all, so either partially or fully breastfed versus those who had only been fed formula um, since birth. And we saw the same associations there with timing and then adverse reactions. And then we also looked at those who had a parental history of atopic conditions, so either um, the mom or the dad had any history of that versus those who didn't report any, um, any family history of ATP. And again, we really saw it pretty much exactly the same association. So that sort of increased our confidence that, you know, this was really about the timing and not sort of associations of that timing with other factors that could be explaining that relationship. Great, thank you so much. Um, what are your guys' takes on using, you know, I feel like the word microbiome is super popular right now. I don't know, I would, as a GI doc, I don't know if you think it's being overused or like, you know, you you really have the buy-in, but what is, you know, does the gut microbiome play a role in preventing or treating cow's milk allergies? And if so, do you recommend pro and prebiotics to your um, patients? Yeah. So um, first off, everybody's talking now about microbiome, which is kind of cool. <laughs> of course, it's all about the gut. And of course, um, actually 90% of your immune system is in the gut. So, you know, it's really, the, it's patrolling the gut, looking for what it should be reacting to and what it shouldn't be. And um, and we know it's interacting with the microbiota, um, you know, all the different um, types of microbes that, that live in your gut. Uh, so I think there is interest in trying to figure out what well, what could we do and how how can we really uh, promote a healthy uh, microbiome that basically uh, helps either prevent or even treat uh, a food allergy. I don't think we're quite there yet. That's the problem. So we're just in the early days of understanding it. It's great that there's all this public awareness. Um, it does make it tricky to give direct advice, uh, but there there's certainly interest in can we you know promote the the microbiome with what are called prebiotics. So really making sure that um, that we uh, enhance anything the baby's getting in terms of being healthy. By the way, breast milk is filled with awesome prebiotics, in particular GOS. Um, and um, a few others like that that are really quite um, good for nourishing the microbiome. And then there are probiotics, of course, uh, that um, that are. Uh, if you go to any pharmacy these days and any supermarket, really, you'll find the probiotic aisle. There's so so many things you can be um, looking at. I think the problem there is we're just in the early days of understanding it. Having said that, do do I personally? Yes, I'm. I've become convinced at some of the probiotic evidence, and I do talk about um, what I know of about a few of the specific probiotics. Um, Jenna, as you know, uh, probiotics are not considered a food and they're not considered a drug. So they are not FDA regulated in any way. So it's a bit of a wild west, um, but there, there is, I think you're seeing emerging evidence for certain strains um, that are helpful and there are probably many others out there. We're just, just at the beginning of understanding it, so. Yeah, Jennifer, you bring up a theme that I feel like just keeps coming up in our podcast. Jenna and I talked about CBD supplements that are unlicensed, and it's it's the wild, <laughs> wild west there too, right? So anytime you get outside of the auspices of the FDA and, and really any requirement for 
verifying what is actually in the product, it's hard to know exactly what you're getting. So I'm glad you've just brought that back uh, to the podcast and our listeners for us. Uh, So I want to, I want to turn a little bit practical for other pediatric healthcare providers um, that may not be a specialist like yourself um, in the gut, but may encounter families that they're uh, concerning signs or symptoms, or maybe they've been diagnosed with cow's milk allergy. So uh, let me start with asking the question, how can pediatric providers of care, including pharmacists, help to identify cow's milk allergy in children? What are those telltale symptoms where we should start thinking about, oh, you need to seek some medical care, some additional diagnostics to, to look into this? Yeah, so I think the classic is um, the baby that seems uncomfortable, so uh, they may be fussy, um, but then you want to put that fussiness together with other things going on, particularly uh, other signs of atopy in the baby. So a baby with perhaps eczema or bad cradle cap or diarrheal stools or even constipation, very irregular stools that suggests um, something's going on inside the gut that you can't see. Um, and and then frankly, you need to be looking for poor growth. So I think if if the baby is, is skinny or they're not growing well and they seem uh, like they have signs of atopy and they seem uncomfortable, the, the, that's the number one thing that should be on everyone's mind is cow's milk allergy. And it can be a great relief Uh, to identify it. So I think what pediatric providers need to do is educate themselves, but then also turn around and educate um, families. And there, we started with this, but really differentiating between the lactose intolerance and cow's milk protein issues is so critical because people will say, well, I switched to lactose-free milk. You know, I have um, you know, and that that actually will not solve the problem of the allergy. So I think really being helpful at educating, explaining, and then reassuring, we're going to figure this out. It does usually resolve, um, and it's um, you know, and 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 at the same time, it's telling you something about that baby's immune system. So maybe even anticipatory guidance of, well, okay, you're in a family with lots of people with seasonal allergies. This could be an early sign that down the line you're going to suffer that way. So, again, not hitting them with that hit them with it's poetry in motion we just got to get you through it (laughs) awesome what um now what are some common misconceptions you see with cow's milk I think you kind of just nailed it with like the lactose intolerance um misconception Uh, is there anything else that we should be aware of aware of as providers that's like common um you know misguidance for lack of a better word yeah, I mean, I think a big one is that, you know, most kids grow, outgrow a cow's milk allergy. It's usually not something that they have forever. Um, you know, you often see it with young children, and then they will eventually develop that tolerance to cow's milk. Um, another one has to do with IgE, um, which is a little bit, you know, it's kind of complicated because we know there are I, reactions to cow's milk and also, you know, other food proteins um, that are mediated by IgE. And then there are also reactions that are an immune mediated reaction. So something we, you know, would kind of categorize as an allergy, but are not mediated specifically by IgE. Um, And the IgE ones are are easier to diagnose because you can do these skin prick testing, you can do uh, blood tests and measure the IgE and then, you know, see if, if there's elevated levels um, to help to diagnose that allergy, but the non-IgE mediated allergies are very difficult to diagnose. Typically, it's done with an oral food challenge, which is just kind of not a good experience often, I think, for the, the patients. And they just aren't, you know, that's not often 
um, um, done as a diagnostic tool. So those can be a little harder to figure out, um, but it doesn't mean that if there is no evidence of an IgE-mediated allergy that the child doesn't still have um, a cow's milk allergy or a different type of food allergy, if you know that's what you're concerned about. So um, I don't have a good answer to that because again, it's you know those are harder to diagnose. We try to get at this a little bit by um, looking at parental report of an allergy as opposed to just IgE evidence, which is what's done in a lot of studies because we really wanted to try to capture those. Um, those additional allergies that that didn't have the IgE involvement, um, but that's just another one to keep in mind that those those can still be allergies even if there's there's no evidence of the the IgE. Um, and then you know I know there's often concern that kids who don't drink milk are going to have you know poor growth um, issues with not having strong bones, um, just concern about not consuming enough nutrients. And you know, well, we know that nutrients like calcium and vitamin D do seem to be important for bone mineralization. These nutrients don't necessarily have to come from milk. There are other ways to get them in the diet. Oh. What would you suggest as a alternative sources for calcium? Yeah, so kids who aren't having any dairy products at all can drink other plant-based milks. Um, I also just wanted to be clear. I don't think I explicitly said this before, but um, babies under one should not be drinking cow's milk as a substitute for breast milk or formula. Um, it's They can have other cow's milk-based products like, you know, yogurt and cheese once they start having complementary foods, but really the primary source of um you know, liquid milk should be breast milk or formula till the age of one. And then after that, they could start drinking like a plant-based milk. Um, only fortified soy milks are sort of officially recommended as a nutritionally comparable alternative to cow's milk because these are really formulated to have similar amounts of the major nutrients. So protein, calcium, vitamin A, vitamin D, uh, the ones that kids are commonly getting from cow's milk. Um, but anyway, just to wrap that up, you know, calcium certainly can be obtained from other foods. And vitamin D is the other one. Um, cow's milk is one of the few dietary sources of vitamin D, but there's really like nothing magical about getting it from milk. Like milk does not naturally contain vitamin D. Um, both dairy and soy milks are fortified with vitamin D, meaning that it's added during the processing. So Kids who are drinking milk can get it, you know, easily from that milk. But if they're not, then just like a basic vitamin D supplement will do the same thing. Um, since it's a fat-soluble nutrient, it's better absorbed if you have it with a dietary source of fat. But that certainly doesn't have to be from, from milk. Yeah, those are great practical tips. I'd love to know, what are some other practical things that you tell parents related to managing cow's milk allergy in their child? Uh, so, you know, I think if you do have, um, an IgE allergy that's significant, you may need an EpiPen. So I think, you know, really recognizing allergy is complex, certain types of allergy, you actually need to know an allergist and you should be trained in how to administer an EpiPen. Um, luckily most kids don't need medications. It's more a matter of trying to gradually do these exposures, uh, to allow them to develop what we call secondary tolerance. So they're, they're, they're having an immune trigger and now we want the immune system to 
become more sophisticated and stop reacting. And so uh, so we're looking for that. Um, as I said, these days we try not to exclude foods if we don't have to. It's more amount, uh, a matter of um, giving small amounts and in and, and perhaps modified ways. So really focusing on baked milk if that's what they can handle in the beginning. And then ideally in the second and third year of life, you're really able to, to increase to yogurts and cheese and ultimately not have to worry about it at all. Our next question is, um, as a pediatric pharmacist, I, I, you know, I see these parents in distress. I hate to use the word colicky because that's like, could mean anything, but like you have this colicky, um, baby, you've tried all these different things. Um, now I would love to know the order of, of kind of how, if you think a child is having GI distress on your regular cow's milk protein formula. Can you walk me through, I, and again, I'm assuming it's provider specific too, like do you first add like an anti-acid or do you first change the formula? When you say, okay, enough's enough and completely change it to something like Nutramagen. I think as a peds pharmacist, we have to be good about obviously deferring to the specialist, but just kind of giving, I always like to give the parents like a couple steps ahead so they know what to anticipate. Like usually the doctor will add this or they'll change the formula to that. Sometimes knowing what's going to come, it's less of like a, a shock to them. Um, so I love your, um, your, your art, as you said, of how, of how you do that. Sure. So, um, so fortunately I have both art and there have been guidelines and they are pretty consistent at this point. Um, the other thing is they are, um, really in, in the uh, context of us recognizing that we were over diagnosing GERD in infants. So many of, of the guidelines on how to manage this are in the context of a baby that is seeming to have GERD or dyspepsia. Uh, and um, and then also, like I said, a big distinct distinguisher is are they growing or not? In the end, the most important thing is there's fussy babies, but there are fussy babies who aren't growing, and those babies have to get your attention. Um, if you are uh, uh, either one, honestly, the right thing is dietary changes. And so if it's a breastfeeding baby, we have to, we do change mom's diet. Uh, the best evidence is for getting milk and eggs out of the diet. And I recommend to do that for two weeks. I will also, I used to at least very much focus on soy because it felt like you took milk out and everybody went heavy soy in trying to compensate. It's interesting with uh, almond milk and oat milk. And I feel like people are now, you know, they're using these other plant-based milks and it's not all soy. So you don't have as much of a you might like overcompensate with soy and actually um, run into uh, issues that way. So, um, so having said that, milk and eggs, there's very good data for taking those out of the diet. I suggest that for two weeks. Usually things get much better. And now I'm trying to re-add things in um, slowly to understand how the baby's reacting. Um, in a formula-fed baby, the change in the diet is really to go from intact milk protein to extensively hydrolyzed, not the partially hydrolyzed, like the gentle or the sensitive formulas, but really the extensively hydrolyzed formulas. And there are a number um, that really meet that criteria, including store brands now. Um, so, you know, it doesn't have to be a um, brand specific discussion at this point. It's really to recognize that we need to get the protein really hydrolyzed, go from, I say, 350 to 400 
uh, um, amino acids in a chain, which is sort of uh, the, the very complex molecule that whey or casein is down to, uh, you want to really be down at the five to eight, which is the extensively hydrolyzed as opposed to um, the partially, which is more in the 30 to 50 range. So, you know, you're trying to really cut the protein down and that makes an enormous difference. And it will um, it will keep the immune, the, the more you cut the protein down, the less immunogenic it is. So the less it's triggering the immune system, immune system gets a chance to calm down and now we can advance the diet once once the baby is you know not having their immune system being triggered by their milk so that's that's the formula fed baby if that helps you as a pharmacist <laughs> that, that, that does and i think like i just see so much like nutramin like i don't know why that's like what i like jump to right away um I, again this might be a very naive question since i'm not a dietitian um the extensively um, hydrolyzed formulas, are there any ones that, well, I know we talked about health equity, that are a reasonable price? Because I find that like a lot of times, you know, these these formulas can be so, so pricey that that's actually, it, it's not feasible for, for yeah. family. Yeah, so um, so the, the answer is that most are covered by WIC. So intriguingly, if you if you are um, using WIC, you're probably going to be okay. And that's across the country. The issue is, frankly, the people who are just out of the WIC range and yet not. So, so there, I think there there has been an expansion in the um, the variety of them out there. And I I would encourage people to focus on that extensively hydrolyzed concept and not to be afraid to get a store brand version if that's the right thing. The, the key is it's really broken down as opposed to some of the name brands that come to mind, including, as you said, Nutramagen or Alimentum or um, some of the extensively hydrolyzed brands that are out there. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I wish I could say otherwise but that that does make a big difference and frankly if you address it right then in the GERD guidelines we have been able to decrease the the need for the acid suppressing medicines those really should be after you've made the dietary changes and you do need to make the dietary changes right and actually Jenison yes I can plug this to your um pharmacy colleagues and of course you know people who I really count on I think where families waste money is they they try like 10 formulas before they go to the extensively hydrolyzed. If they went to the extensively hydrolyzed, they would make, you know, they wouldn't have to go through all those formula changes, which I think is is part of the mental health issue for families. They're going crazy trying to figure out what the baby's going to calm down on. Um, the other thing most of my colleagues will say is try to give it a good two weeks. I know if you can give it 72 hours, you're going to notice, oh my goodness, the baby is so much better. Like it really is. It's, it's a pretty quick change. And that's probably the microbiome changing too. It's a little bit of evidence of that. That's extremely helpful. And I think like in practice, I see a lot of pediatricians jump to adding like an acid blocker on. And, you know, the more evidence we have behind like a, a PPI and, and knowing there, it, it's not a benign drug. So oh, it, that alters your microbiome too, right? So that we know that. So I think it's really, yes, we want to do those dietary changes first and acid suppression really is only afterwards um, once you've done that. So yeah, Jennifer, as you've outlined, we, we have a pretty clear perspective on how to approach these cow's milk allergy and, 
and the youngest among us. Um, however, I, I'm just curious, are there any new or promising treatments for cow's milk allergy on the, on the horizon? Or do you see this uh, management approach continuing to kind of be the standard of care? Um, I think we don't. So the, the nice thing, as we've been saying, is allergy will go away. The immune system does mature. It does um, become better at realizing milk is good for you. It's intended as a food, not not it's not a foreign substance out to get you. So your immune system will stop reacting. Um, I think where the the really exciting evidence has been in, is in recognizing how we can have the right guidance for uh, food introductions and perhaps for changing the world around us in terms of you know climate change and understanding what our industrialized societies have done um, that might actually prevent it in the first place. The nice thing would be that you don't have to have families where you know allergy sort of is there and you know we really can stop reacting to our world. So that's what my hope is. <laughs> Well, that's great. Uh, we appreciate both of you coming on to talk about your own work and um, what we can do as pediatric healthcare providers to educate ourselves, but also educate other people on these cow's milk reactions. Uh, but before we go, I just wanted to give you both a, a free platform to talk a bit more about are there any other last messages regarding these cow's milk um, reactions that you would want to leave uh, listeners and other pediatric healthcare providers with? I'll I'll say that as a gastroenterologist, um, I really encourage everyone to be fascinated by your immune system and really to respect that it is it's such an important piece of protecting you, but also something we we maybe need to protect um, as we continue to uh, be in our industrialized world um, and um, and really recognizing that that we can figure it out and, and understand why there's been this rise in allergy and and how we're going to stop that from happening. And I'm curious what Karen's going to say. <laughs> yeah, so just I just wanted to mention one thing that I feel very passionate about that's sort of related to this concept of food allergy, which is just that a parent's job really in this early feeding period, I think the most important thing is to just not create stress and anxiety around food. And that's, you know, applies to all all sorts of things, but it's very relevant and difficult in the situation of a food allergy because, you know, you have this thing that, you know, you want to teach your child that it can hurt them, it can make them sick, and they need to kind of be careful um, about avoiding it. Obviously, this is, you know, relevant with an older child, but you don't want to be creating that fear and anxiety around food. And I certainly struggle with this um, myself as, you know, with my own child with food allergies, but I think it's a, it's a delicate balance, but it's definitely something that's worth being aware of and just sort of thinking about how you're approaching that with, their, with your child, how you're explaining it, and just sort of that, that sense of, of fear and anxiety that you can be creating in the context of the allergy, which really, you know, can sort of impact how they sort of relate to food um, and their relationship with food and eating in general. Um, and we know that this is, you know, this early... Um, toddlerhood complementary feeding period is really a very sensitive period for sort of establishing um a sort of the relationship with food and you know how kids are approaching um and regulating their food intake so just you know it's certainly hard i sympathize with it um for sure but just kind of something to be aware of and to think about parents how they can sort of manage their own anxiety and not kind of project that to their child while still encouraging them to be aware and you know protect their own health Thank you both. We really appreciate your time. Thank Have you for having us. It was a pleasure.
That's all for today's episode. Thanks for listening. And remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave us a review.